several weeks ago before the retreat, I uh, talked about a couple of the, what are called the Brahma Viharas, uh, compassion and uh, sympathetic joy. And I thought I would round it out by talking about equanimity. So the topic for this evening uh, is a review of the characteristics of equanimity and where it shows up in uh, Buddhist doctrine. It is a primary goal of meditation practice. It has a characteristic of um, balance, um, non-reactivity, peacefulness. Uh, It creates a kind of openness in the mind that supports more creativity in adapting to changing circumstances. There's a Zen story about this. There's a Zen renunciate who lived in seclusion near a small village. He's renowned for his wisdom and his compassion. Two young lovers who lived in the village got pregnant and feared the consequences of disclosing who the father was. So they claimed a monk was the father. This caused great turmoil in the village and contempt for a monk who had violated his vows of celibacy. And it's caused him much difficulty as he depended on the villagers for food, which they provided, after that, unwillingly. When a child was born, they took her to him and demanded that he raise the child. He looked at the mother and at the infant with great compassion and said, Ah, just so, and took in the child and the mother, caring for them as best he could under the circumstances, with great compassion and, and uh, loving kindness. Not that, while not violating his vow of celibacy. Several years later, the mother became seriously ill and, on the point of death, told her parents of the deceit, named their real father, and then died. The parents, accompanied by the villagers, ashamed of their mistrust and mistreatment of the monk, came to him and said they would take the child back. With great compassion and equanimity, he said, Ah, just so, and returned the child to them mother's parents. So this is a characteristic of equanimity. The man did the right thing even in the face of um, disrespect and, and mistrust. So there are two terms that apply to equanimity. First one is upeka. And uh, this is one of the origins of the word described in the commentary. This corresponds to the Sanskrit upreksha. Preksha means to be a spectator or to look on without interfering, while the prefix ud has the meanings of superiority or separation. Functionally, upeka is synonymous with tatramajatata. I love saying that word, such a mouthful which is loosely translated as that quality of awareness that is in the middle, not too energized or too tranquil, too convinced or too skeptical. Now, Upeka is primarily associated with what are called the four divine abidings, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. 
while Tatra Majatata is primarily associated with uh, being the uh, seventh of the seven awakening factors. I'm going to talk about them more in depth as we go on. In doing my research for this, I came across an article by uh, a PhD who uh, lives in Sri Lanka, I think. Her name is Ann Murphy. And she published this article in the Journal of Social Sciences and Humanities in 2017. And she reviews commentary found in the Visuddhimagga, which is translated as the Path of Purification. This is a primary text of Theravada Buddhism. Um, it's over a thousand pages thick. Compiled several hundred years after the time of the Buddha by a group led by the monk Buddhaghosa. Uh, those of you heard uh, me talk about uh, Wisdom Wide and Deep recently, a book by uh, Shada Catherine. It's her rendition of the Visuddhimagga. The Visuddhimagga, obviously, was, it was written around the beginning of the... Um, first century of the common era and so it's rather archaic in its terminology but her understanding of it her writing about it is very clear in the Visuddhimagga there are ten characteristics uh, described uh, regarding Upeka I'm going to read them off um, some of them are redundant, but I will read off something, at, uh, a quote at the end of my uh, rendering uh, that will explain why that redundancy exists. And one of the things that's interesting about the Visuddhimagga, by the way, is that it is extraordinarily detailed. I have a copy of it, and I've actually read most of it, which is quite, quite an accomplishment. It took me a long time to do that. Um, and it's very deep, very profound, and very detailed in describing the human condition and uh, the concepts, uh, practices associated with the process of awakening. So, the first one is six-factored equanimity. Now, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, one of the categories mentioned uh, are the, what are called the six sense bases. The eyes and seeing, ears and hearing, the nose and smelling, tongue and tasting, and the various somatosensory sensations in the body, and the mind that thinks. Now, the goal of the Satipatthana practice is to cultivate uh, three very important uh, approaches to investigating the mind. Adapi Sati Sapajanya. You've heard me talk about this many times. It's mentioned repeatedly in the Satipatthana Sutta. Adapi is translated as diligent, Sati is mindful, and um, Sapajanya is uh, clear comprehension regarding the six sense bases. Now, uh, this approach in terms of the six-factor equanimity involves carefully investigating what happens in the mind 
and discovering non-identification and non-reactivity. Now, this will become more clear as we go through the other uh, manifestations of equanimity. But uh, non-reactivity is what we most often associate with equanimity, which is there's a, a sensory stimulation that's either pleasant or unpleasant. And the mind either uh, reacts in terms of wanting that whatever stimulation is associated with the pleasantness or not wanting whatever sensation is associated with unpleasantness. Now in modern terminology, um, the first is called affect approach. Affect is a feeling. I'll be talking more about this later. But basically, when we're thinking about six-factor equanimity, we're not really investigating the process of seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or sensations in the body. Because all of those are being interpreted, processed uh, by the sixth sense base, the mind. So six-factor equanimity is an understanding of how the selfing process operates in a way that is not um, impulsively reactive and uh, is not, uh, does not identify with what the mind creates as being a self. So uh, that's what six-factored equanimity is. Keep that in mind because I'll be I'm going to be tying all these together later. The second one is the one that's most uh, familiarly uh, investigated. It says, equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. I mentioned them earlier. Uh, the, the Brahma Vihara is translated as um, the abodes of, of the gods, divine abidings the emotional attributes of liberated consciousness. First one is metta, loving kindness. Second one is karuna, uh, which is compassion. Third is mudita, which is sympathetic joy. And the fourth is upeka. Now metta has this characteristic of um, open-heartedness about all um, mental experience does not um, uh, advert from, push away, reject whatever is being experienced. There's a, a, a quality of openness about relating to that. It doesn't mean that it's hapless or helpless. Uh, what it means is that the response to the situation is guided by kindness. A subset of uh, metta is karuna, compassion. So if you think about kindness in terms of empathy, empathy regarding distress and confusion. Now, the experience of distress and confusion is always interpreted personally. What I mean by that is the only way I can understand someone else's pain is through reference 
to my own subjective experience. Now, I might notice someone else's face um, configured in a way that reflects pain, and I know what that means because I've experienced pain and my face has gone into the same kind of uh, contortion. Um, So, uh, or you might see an animal cringing, um, obviously in pain, or whining, crying, and we empathize with that because we're social animals. I talked about this, as I said, a few weeks ago. Uh, now, uh, the third one, mudita, is uh, an appreciation of the happiness of others um, in an unselfish way, a generous way. Now, equanimity brings balance to these uh, three characteristics. What I mean by that is, what in terms of loving kindness, uh, there's what's called the far enemy and the near enemy. The far enemy of loving kindness is aversion, ill will, hatred. The near enemy is idealization. Uh, what I mean by that is, I might project out into the world a sense of what love should be. It's idealized, romanticized. When I say romanticized, I don't mean necessarily any kind of um, sexual attraction way. What I mean is that there are certain kinds of expectations that are uh, part of the way the mind is created, a sense of uh, kindness. And when the other person does not behave according to that expectation, then the um, far enemy of loving kindness pops into view. We often see this in romantic uh, or familial relationships. That I'm going to love you as long as you love me back in the way that I expect you to. And if you don't, then I'm justified in being angry at you. So, um, with uh, Mudita, the uh, excuse me, with uh, Karuna, the uh, far enemy is harshness and cruelty. That's pretty self-evident. The near enemy is pity. Uh, It's sometimes hard to understand, but pity means um, creating a sense of derogation of whoever's suffering, including yourself. You poor thing. Creating a sense of separation. One of the basic elements of loving kindness is dissolving separations. So, uh, with pity, there's a sense of separating from whoever's suffering. Uh, With mudita, sympathetic joy, the far enemy is uh, jealousy and envy. The near enemy is uh, another form of idealizing and uh, kind of frantic way. Uh, The best example I can think of of people who are avid sports fans and when your team wins you know you go crazy jump up and down all kinds of celebratory things what happens if your team loses well turns into despair or hatred or some other kind of experience now Upeka has a far enemy and a near enemy the far enemy of Upeka is attachment identification with 
what's happening. This is important to keep in mind because I'll be reviewing this later on when I talk about this. Um, the near enemy is uh, numbness or uh, dissociation. Now, as a psychotherapist, there are different ways to understand dissociation. Uh, clinically, dissociation can be something like someone who's what we call dissociative identity disorder, used to be called multiple personality disorder. They check out of one personality organization and into another. But this is a different kind of dissociation. This is, you know, you still have a sense of in, uh, enduring identity, but um, you distract yourself. You uh, numb out. You um, go into denial. So, uh, so the function of upeka is to bring balance to these characteristics, but that goes back to what I mentioned earlier, uh, adhapi sati sampajanya, diligent, mindful, clear comprehension. Um, I'll be diving into that a little bit further as we go along as well. So, the third of the ten um, characteristics is equanimity as an enlightenment factor. Also in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is contemplation of what are called the seven awakening factors. Mindfulness, investigation of mental phenomena, energy as slash right effort, joy slash enthusiastic engagement, tranquility, concentration slash unification of wholesome mind conditioners, and equanimity slash balance. So you know, uh, mindfulness has this characteristic of present moment awareness that has the same kind of function as what happens when uh, the lens of a camera is, uh, you know, light travels through it and creates an imprint on some kind of medium. Uh, could be celluloid film, could be a little computer chip. That mindfulness, that, that impression has no judgment, no opinion, no reaction. It just simply is aware. Uh, investigation uh, has a characteristic of mm, putting what is arising in awareness into the context of either wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, or neither wholesome nor unwholesome. So, um, investigation is not so much about um, why did I do this, It's although that could be a part of it, it's more along the lines of how is this coming to be in the mind? How is this particular self coming to be in the mind? The uh, third one, energy, is manifestation of right effort, which is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. So, uh, basically what that amounts to is that when uh, a human being is operating, energy is coming into the system in the form of food and oxygen, and that travels throughout the body. And in the brain, specifically in this case, uh, that energy uh, travels through neural pathways. And the uh, stimulation of the neuro those neural pathways is what we call thinking. 
or uh, emotions. It also in, could involve you know, signals out into the body, the muscles and uh, metabolic effects and so forth, but we're primarily concerned with thinking and emotions. So um, this energy is either going to be channeled into unwholesome manifestations of self or wholesome manifestations of self or just simply an acknowledgement of a moment of present moment existence. Um, so these three factors, mindfulness, investigation, and right effort, are key parts of the uh, seven awakening factors in the process of awakening. When those three functions are operating correctly, then a certain quality of joy emerges, a kind of exuberance, buoyancy, um, enthusiastic interest and engagement in what's happening. Whether what is happening is pleasant or unpleasant. Um, an example that's kind of you know, exaggerated is people will pay good money to uh, get on a roller coaster and their body sends signals to their brain saying, you're about to die. And yet people will scream and laugh and have a good time. Personally, I would just get nauseous. used to be that I would scream and laugh and have a good time, but not anymore. So uh, this notion of joy can either be associated with something that's wholesome or unwholesome. But with in terms of the awakening factors, it's... Um, it's something that comes about because of the balance of mindfulness, investigation, and right effort. Remember the word balance. Uh, tranquility is pretty obvious. Quality of serenity. There's um, um, harmony, uh, systematic harmony in the emotional uh, setting. There's uh, a quality of peacefulness, quietude in the mind. Now, I want to emphasize that this tranquility can be operating even when um, other aspects of one's experience can be rather energized. So you can be tranquil um, in situations that otherwise might seem to be overly exciting doesn't mean the mind is dull um, doesn't mean you're sedated it just simply means that the flow of experience is not um, erratic or exaggerated or um, overstimulated concentration or unification of wholesome mind conditioners so this unification means that all of the wholesome mind conditioners, most particularly the seven awakening factors, are cooperating. Their functioning is well integrated at optimal performance level. Now, when I talk about this, that the word for concentration and unification is samadhi, and the word for tranquility is pasadhi. Um, so, samadhi pasadhi is, is uh, 
a characteristic of the process of awakening. And so uh, those factors are brought into balance by equanimity, in this case, Tatra Majatata. I mentioned before that, you know, <clears throat> uh, that which is found in the middle. It's not too excited or too sedated. It's not too identified with what is emerging into awareness or too skeptical. So there's this very balanced dynamic that is produced by mindfulness, investigation, and right effort. But the manifestation of equanimity is a very important part of this whole process, as I mentioned at the very beginning. So uh, that's equanimity as an enlightenment factor. The next one is equanimity of energy. Now, um, the, uh, the word for the energy awakening factor is virya-bhajanga. Virya is the word for energy. And um, I mentioned this moment uh, just a few minutes ago when I talked about how uh, our bodies transform food and oxygen into fuel. And this travels everywhere the blood goes, including into the brain. And uh, so the equanimity of energy basically is the uh, ability for that energy to not be locked into a particular neural pattern. This is what we call long-term potentiation in psychology. And we also might think of it as a certain habit of thinking. Um, but when equanimity of energy is there, the mind is not overexcited or underexcited. There's a balance between what's called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems in the body. Sympathetic system is the activating symptom system. Parasympathetic is the sedating system. So they, when mindfulness meditation is operating well, the mind is very alert emotionally calm, and the body is physically quite relaxed. I have this experience on a regular basis when I'm meditating. I kind of check everything out inside. My body is poised, but there's no tension in my face, in my shoulders, my hands, my back, my legs, anywhere. It's very, very relaxed while maintaining a, a, an erect posture. And my emotions are... Uh, basically quiet and mildly pleasant and uh, the uh, uh, quality of attention is generally pretty stable um, and is aware of stream of consciousness as a flow of phenomena not particularly identifying with whatever storyline is popping up but just simply noticing it as a, a transient stream of thoughts and impressions. That's equanimity of energy. Now, um, 
here's a quote from the article, uh, Ann Murphy's article I mentioned above. Equanimity of energy is the midway point of energy between the two opposing mental states of laziness and restlessness. When a bhikkhu devoted to the higher mind from time to time gives attention to the mark of concentration, from time to time to the mark of exertion, and from time to time to the mark of equanimity, his mind becomes malleable, wieldy, wieldy and luminous, pliant, and properly concentrated for the destruction of the taints. Now the words malleable, wieldy, wieldy and pliant uh, are part of what are called the uh, beautiful pairs of mind conditioners. Those of you who are in the room, you can look at the Chattasivas chart and you'll see that up there. So, um, what we're talking about with equanimity of energy is the optimization of how energy is moving through the mind and the body. The next one is a very important one. Equanimity about formations. Now, in... Uh, Pali, the, the language that the Visuddhimagga is written in, uh, formations are called sankara. And these are the constituent elements that come together to shape each moment of consciousness. Um, there are uh, universal or neutral uh, sankara, there are unwholesome sankara, and there are wholesome sankara. Um, Energy is moving through them. So, uh, as a, one of the benefits of mindfulness investigation and right effort, which is just a different way of describing Adipi Sati Sampajanya, uh, the um, stream of thoughts diminishes, becomes either not there at all or is very faint. The way I describe it, instead of it being you know, some kind of creature screaming in my ear that I, I can't avoid. Uh, the internal narrative, the selfing story, is in the other room with the door closed. I could tune into it, but because of the, the skills that are being developed, not particularly interested in doing that because it's more peaceful and more clear um, when the mind has set aside the narrative and the hindrances. So this is what equanimity of, of uh, formations involves and also very much involved with what's called vipassana. In fact, you could say that you know, uh, vipassana practice um, requires uh, the maximum benefit of mindfulness investigation and right effort, cultivating interest in what's going on tranquility, stability of attention, and um, balance in all of that. So equanimity about formations relates to what in the Visuddhimagga are called the progressions of insight or the nine insight knowledges. Now, knowledge of equanimity towards formations is the eighth of these insights. Now these insights move progressively from basic up to and the basic one is basically living an ethical life. Uh, um, but the uh, 
Knowledge of equanimity toward formations is the eighth of the nine insights. Uh, this is related to another Pali term, viraga, dispassion. So there's a, dis, a dispassion regarding any formation in the mind, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. Basically, that uh, comes down to um, a clear awareness that what is arising in consciousness is impersonal and subject to change constantly. And uh, this can have two different kinds of effects. One of them is uh, a sense of detachment or indifference about um, any notion of there being a self. That's what the equanimity about formations is. Or a sense of repulsion and uh, rejection. When I say rejection, what I mean is that there's not, it, there's an awareness that Whatever the mind concocts is unsatisfactory in terms of being permanent or ultimately reliable. So that's equanimity about formations. That sets the stage for the ninth insight. And the ninth insight is basically total relinquishment of notion of there being a separate self which is what we could call, what is called non-duality or nirvana. So that's equanimity about formations. Now, this doesn't necessarily occur, you know, way out in, in uh, awakening land. This is something that occurs on a regular basis whenever we can just simply notice that what's being created in the mind is just a fabrication. It's not a reliable rendition of reality. It's not a self. It's just something that is more or less wholesome, more or less beneficial in regards to living. So that's equanimity, but that's about formations, but that's inconstant in its appearance. It's not very powerful um, and it's you know, it, it's hard to even realize that it's happening. So it's not as though this equanimity about formations is not attainable. It's just that our experience of it is fleeting and unstable and incomplete, if you will. So the next um, manifestation of equanimity is related to feeling. Now, the word in Pali uh, for feeling is Vedana. And um, it's us that's usually translated as feeling, but that's hard to work with in our language because we often, we always associate feelings with emotions. More apt term is affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. And that's an impulsive either approach toward pleasant uh, experience that's either physical or mental or affect avoidance which is an impulsive reactivity that pushes away an unpleasant uh, 
physical or mental um, experience or affect neutral, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Um, so equanimity regarding feelings is uh, uh, not necessarily absent feeling. What it means is that if there is unpleasantness, it's just unpleasant. Um, for example, as I was meditating tonight, there was an unpleasant feeling between the, the bones in my ankles. I sit cross-legged and the feeling was there. The mind created a, a tendency toward wanting to reject it and change the posture, but I decided intentionally to just let it be and observe what happened. So the mind moved from wanting to escape the unpleasantness to shifting to paying attention to something else in which the feeling was not even evident in awareness or the unpleasant feeling was there but my mind did not want to reject it. That's equanimity as a feeling. Same thing could be true about a pleasant feeling. Um, what comes to mind as I say this is a, a story of the Dalai Lama who was in New York City walking down a street that is famous for all the clock stores that are on it. And the, uh, as a boy, the Dalai Lama was fascinated with machinery and people would give him gifts of clocks and other items and he would gleefully take them apart and put them back together again and wonder at how they worked. So he's walking down the street, looking in the stores at these marvelous constructions and someone asked him about it and he said, it's very interesting, but I don't need it. So it's very interesting, could relate to either his judgment about the craftsmanship that he's witnessing or very interesting in terms of noticing how the mind wants that. That's the um, investigation and joy factors and along with right effort and mindfulness in play and tranquility. So, uh, this is reflected in the second foundation of mindfulness. I'm going to read an abbreviated quote that relates to the notion of feelings as being impersonal. And how does a monk remain focused on feelings in and of themselves? There is the case where a monk, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns a feeling a painful feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling, he discerns I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he discerns when feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. In this way, he remains focused internally on feelings in and of themselves, or externally on feelings in and of themselves, or both internally and externally on feelings in and of themselves, or he remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to feelings, on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to feelings, or on the phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to feelings. Or, his mindfulness that there are feelings is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And he remains independent, unsustained by not clinging to, 
anything in the world. This is how a monk remains focused on feelings in and of themselves. So, uh, the extent of knowledge and remembrance. Knowledge is sampajanya. Remembrance is mindfulness. When the, the word sati is translated as uh, non-forgetfulness. So, in this context, mindfulness doesn't get hooked into identifying with what is in awareness. So, um, there are mindfulness of feelings in and of themselves. Basically says, feelings are a phenomenon. Um, Vedana is something that occurs in an organism. If you observe uh, an amoeba in a Petri dish, then you put something in there that is nutritious, the little amoeba will wiggle its way over to that. That's affect approach. If you put something toxic in the Petri dish, the little amoeba will wiggle away from it. That's affect avoidance. Uh, If you put something in there that's neither nutritious nor uh, toxic, it will stay where it is. That's affect uh, neutral. So, um, that's what we're talking about here with the uh, second foundation of mindfulness is contemplating the impersonality of affect, affective experience. Alright, the next one, the seventh equanimity is about insight. Um, now, when I was talking about equanimity about formations, insights, and I talked about the progressions of insight, those progressions are all mind fabrications. They're characteristics of the way wholesome mind conditioners are operating at higher and higher levels of uh, effectiveness, of uh, proficiency. And so, uh, there's an awareness of each of the um, progressions of insight, but not getting hooked into them. Um, my, ex- I had there's one of the arrays, uh, the, the progressions of insight, is um, a direct knowledge of arising and passing away. And for me, this happened many years ago on a retreat, and happened quite recently to somebody on a retreat. This last retreat. If you've ever been in a room with a strobe light and you move your arm, it seems like there are different arms in different positions. Well, that same phenomena is observed in the mind. Moments of self-organization arise and pass away multiple times a second, very, very rapidly. And for me, it was frightening. My mind reflexively bounced back from it. But I knew what it was from my reading. I knew what I was experiencing. And basically the fear was, this is how things really are. There really isn't an enduring self. You know, so it's sort of like knocked the pins out from under my ego, my sense of continuity and reliability. Now, as the progressions of insight go higher, there's equanimity about that. Remember I said that equanimity is uh, about formations, the, is the eighth of the ninth uh, progressions of insight. Um, well, so 
you have that same kind of equanimity. What that would mean is that should that I have that experience again, I would simply note it as a phenomena without wanting it or without rejecting it. I would simply be aware of it. That's equanimity about insight. It's also equanimity about formations. Um, now, in the Hindu tradition, there's a practice called Advaita Vedanta. And uh, that awareness, equanimity about insight, has that same kind of quality of non-dual awareness that is associated with equanimity about insight. The next one is equanimity as a specific neutrality. Um, there are certain sankharas that occur in every moment of awareness. And they are called neutral uh, or malleable conditions. Uh, and uh, one-pointedness is one of them. One-pointedness is just simply, if you imagine a wave, it comes together and it has a peak. That peak is one-pointedness, then it falls apart. And it comes together, there's a peak, it's one-pointedness, it falls apart. There's vitality is another one of these. Vitality is the energy manifestation in terms of one-pointedness. Um, there's energy and awareness. And um, attention is the third one. So uh, attention is just simply what happens when you become aware of any moment in the mind. These three factors, there's equanimity about them. They're balanced. They're simply noticed as a phenomena. They're, those are mind conditioners. Those are sankhara as well. One-pointedness, vitality, and attention. The next one is equanimity of jhana. There are levels of highly trained and concentrated awareness that are called jhana. And they're predominant in the Visuddhimagga and uh, Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, not so much in Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. There's no equivalence in those uh, traditions. But there are four levels of what are called the form jhanas. And as one moves through these levels, the consciousness becomes more and more refined. When you get to the fourth jhana, the characteristics of the fourth jhana is that the mind is very stable and um, completely detached from experiencing embodiment. I had glimpses of that on one retreat and it seemed like there was energy that was flowing in a very, very coherent, very fast track and there was no interest in anything other than that. No interest in there being a body, no interest in any kind of environmental sounds. It was just these two factors, mindfulness and equanimity. Um, so that's characteristic of the fourth jhana. And then the final one is equanimity of purification. Now, equanimity of purification um, is 
what I was talking about when I, that's the ninth uh, insight and the progressions of insight is that there's a realization, an immediate knowledge of the impersonality and the transient nature of subjective experience. Direct, immediate knowledge. So uh, there's a complete and total balance. I mentioned the fourth jhana. There's a, this flow of uh, attention that's very stable and um, very equanimous. Well, that same thing happens in the practice of vipassana. Vipassana doesn't is vipassana practice cannot happen in jhana states. Some people would say it can happen in the first jhana. I'm not going to talk about that. It certainly doesn't happen in the fourth jhana. But in the process of vipassana, which is what leads to nirvana, that's a characteristic of total renunciation of belief in an enduring autonomous self. That is equanimity of purification. Now, what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to read a quote uh, from Ann Murphy's article that uh, ties together all these different equanimity manifestations. Now, if you want to really try to integrate this, I, I have enjoyed doing it, but I don't want to take the time to try to explain it. Here's the quote. I'm going to read it off, and you can download the notes online and, and contemplate it yourself. Uh, Bhikkhu Buddhaghosa states that six of these ten kinds of equanimity are one or the same in meaning. These six kinds are the six-factored equanimity. Equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara, an enlightenment factor, a specific neutrality of jhana, and purifying equanimity. He elaborates that their difference is one of position and likens this to a person being either a boy, a youth, adult, a general, or a king. For example, equanimity as an enlightenment factor cannot be found where there is a six-factored equanimity, just as a six-factored equanimity cannot be found where there is equanimity as an enlightenment factor. Now, remember that six-factored equanimity is realizing that what the mind is making out of what is seen and what is heard is realized as just a phenomena. Now, that's different than the, in the awakening factors, because the awakening factors are not so much concerned about analyzing what the mind is making out of the six sense spaces, but of the mind making itself. That's what that references. Um, equanimity about formations and equanimity about insight are also considered the same in meaning, but are distinctly classified in two ways according to their function. However, equanimity of energy and equanimity as a feeling are considered entirely different from each other and from all the other kinds of equanimity. In sum, while the practice of equanimity might be generally considered uninteresting or, either rather, or even rather boring, with some analysis of the commentaries, one learns that equanimity is indeed a deeply profound and beautiful state of mind with many facets in its application. So, couple of suggestions about how to cultivate equanimity. One of them is, I already mentioned, work with a mildly unpleasant feeling. Notice how the mind rejects it. 
and um, find a way to keep the balance of your attention in such a way that the mind does not become wrapped around the unpleasantness, in other words, preoccupied with struggling with it, but that can simply accept it using sensation of breathing as a stabilizing point of reference. The more you cultivate um, samadhi positivity through mindful investigation of the breath combined with right effort so that your predominance of your attention is focused on the sensation breathing, the more heightened interest occurs, tranquility, unification of attention, and equanimity. And that creates a, a, a quality of non-reactivity and clarity that I call a buffer against uh, craving and clinging. You can be aware of what the mind is making of pressure between my two ankles. It can, it can simply notice that that's a phenomena that has the characteristic of unpleasantness but does not demand action or preoccupation. It's just there, along with the sensation of breathing. That's a way to cultivate um, equanimity. Another way is interpersonally. Uh, if you're in a situation where you have a preference that differs from somebody else's preference, you can either duel it out or you can just simply defer and notice how the mind wants it to, I want it to be my way. You know, there's this old adage, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? And it certainly applies in my relationship. I have a very good relationship with my wife, but I'm very aware that when we, we have this difference in preferences, this is a chance for me to cultivate equanimity and patience uh, and deference in that regard. And peacefulness is valuable because whatever it is that we're dickering about uh, or bickering about is uh, not all that important in the larger scope of life. So uh, those are a couple of th things you can contemplate uh, effectively in terms of cultivating equanimity. Now the opportunity presents itself for any questions or comments that you may have about what you heard me say. Anybody? Lily? Hi. Hi. I have a lot I have a lot of questions. But I'm gonna I'm gonna minimize them. Um, so I wanted to get back to the third manifestation of equanimity what you're talking about equanimity as a enlightenment factor. And I just wanted to make sure I understood it right. Um, so you were saying that the energy we put in our body, um, when it comes, you know, when it circulates, um, when the blood is circulating, it gets up to the brain and then it comes into, you have the neural connections, the neural pathways, and it manifests as what we call thinking, right? And then thinking, you have basically wholesome, unwholesome, and then neutral. And that's where um, mindfulness, investigation, and right effort comes in. So basically, as soon as you notice you have wholesome, unwholesome, or, or neutral thoughts, that's basically equanimity of formations, right? 
because you notice the mental formations. The equanimity so about the formations means that you're not you're not identifying with those formations as a self, and you're not falling into nihilism. In other words, you're what you're thinking is right? what you're thinking is meaningless. You're not falling into that either. Mm-hmm. So you're basically just noticing they're either wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral. And you feed, um, you continue to feed the energy into the wholesome ones as long as the circumstances warrant it. If the circumstances mm-hmm. change, you know, then you stop feeding that particular set of neural pathways because they're no longer wholesome. So basically, that's the point of equanimity as an enlightenment factor. It's basically, is it that point of... Because to me, to me, it sounds like this one and the equanimity of formations are kind of the same. So I, I just wanted to make sure I understand the difference between equanimity as an enlightenment factor and equanimity as formations. What is the difference there? The, the difference is... Um, when you're talking about equanimity as an awakening factor, it's balancing the the um, investigation, uh, right effort, you know, energy, and um, uh, joy are activating factors. Um, tranquility and concentration are uh, calming factors. Mindfulness kind of hovers over that process and either authorizes channeling energy into if it's wholesome so that there's a balance between energy and tranquility. And there's a balance between um, stability of attention, which is kind of a, a commitment or conviction about a particular thought, and uh, investigation, which could easily fall into skeptical doubt. So mindfulness keeps watching all of this, and when it's optimally operating, when those seven factors are optimally operating, that's uh, equanimity as an awakening factor. Now, in terms of equanimity regarding formations, all of those awakening factors are formations. Right? So, equanimity regarding formations basically means there's an overarching detachment regarding personalizing anything that the mind creates. Any formation, there's a quality of equanimity about that awareness. You see the difference? To me, it sounds a little bit that one is more about the process and the other one is about the content. They're both about process. They're just a different application. It's just a different application of the process, a Mm -hmm. different approach or perspective regarding that. Remember what I I just said. The the seven awakening factors are formations. Mm -hmm. When they're operating optimally, Mm -hmm. that's equanimity. But... Over all of that is the realization that everything is a formation, subjectively. Okay. And so there's an equanimity about that. Mm-hmm. 
Do you see how that's different? That's that's more clear. Yes. Okay. And then what I just wanted to mention is I thought it, it summed up so well when you said mindfulness meditation operation is alert mind, emotionally calm, and... Um, Physically relaxed. Yes. I, I think this is so beautiful. That just sums up the whole practice. <laughs> like, to me, I just circled it and everything. I'm like, that's just beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It was nice to wave it at uh, April. I don't think she saw me, Brian, but it was nice to see her. She's growing up. Oh, sorry. Anyway, um, other questions or comments? I know I've, I've given a lot to you. I'm going to post the recording and the notes tomorrow or Friday at the latest. Um, if you want to look at it closer, um, download the notes. If you want it, the article, email me and I will send you the article, which I downloaded um, and have in my computer. The article by Ann Murphy. The topic for next week will be back, very much back to the basics. It will be mindfulness of breathing. There will be a training meditation and um, the Dharma talk will investigate all the different attributes of the simple act of anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, I've talked about mindfulness breathing, I couldn't tell you how many times given Dharma talks on it over the last 30 plus years but each time I do it I have a different insight about it different understanding of it from my own practice and my my uh, reading so um, tune into that I hope you'll find it interesting it's our custom at the end of our meetings to sit for a moment in silence so let's do that Again, thank you for your practice. I wish you well and hope we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to chat.